Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about constitutional monarchy. The recent passing of Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom reminded me of a fascinating moment in Chinese history. See, I've always found the very notion of constitutional monarchy, such as they practice it in the UK, to be faintly ridiculous. Sure, it's better than actual absolutist monarchy, but if you've already decided to move to democracy, why not go the whole nine yards and establish a republic? Why continue to center your national public life on a hereditary family, the individual members of which may or may not possess any personal qualities to recommend them. But this attitude on my part is reflective of my own prejudices, prejudices born of being heir to and a descendant of the Chinese Republican Revolution of 1911. In truth, republicanism, as envisioned by Dr. Sun Yat-sen, and understood in a way rather similar to the American model, was only one of a number of competing schools of thought during the tumultuous final years of the Qing dynasty, which is to say the late 19th and early 20th century. The Qing regime had grown rotten by then. Furthermore, perhaps even more importantly, China faced the unprecedented civilizational challenge of the modern Western world with its superior technology, its self-confidence, and its colonial attitude. Even a well-functioning imperial government would have had its hands full dealing with such a foreign challenge. And the late Qing was emphatically not a well-functioning state. Everyone had recognized the seriousness of the challenge by the turn of the 20th century. It was hard to miss when, in 1900 and 1901, the Boxer Rebellion led to foreign armies marching into Beijing itself. The question was, what ought we to do about it? Sanya Sen said, let's get rid of the monarchy completely and start anew with a republic. Others thought, not so fast. How about, they suggested, a constitutional monarchy, like in many European countries, such as the United Kingdom, or Japan. One major impetus for the movement to constitutionalize the Qing monarchy was the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-05. Sure, before this, some intellectuals and activists had already called for a constitutional monarchy. The most important such voice was a man named Liang Qichao. As so frequently happens on this podcast, 
I'm going to say now that we can do a whole episode just on Liang Qichao, for he is one of the most important figures from that period of Chinese history. But for today, we won't go into his story other than to say that, after a period of republicanism, Liang Qichao came to believe that American-style democracy was unsuitable for China, and he became. A leading voice calling for the emperor to promulgate a constitution. Until the Russo-Japanese War, though, these voices outside of government had no one in court to advocate for their position. In fact, for his involvement in earlier reform movements, Liang Qichao had won himself exile in Japan. When the Russo-Japanese War. Came around, however, it shocked the Chinese. Japan was a much smaller country than Russia, but with the Meiji Restoration in 1868, Japan had instituted a form of constitutional monarchy modeled on Prussia and later Germany. The Russian Tsar, on the other hand, remained an absolutist monarch. And little Japan was able to wipe the floor with the Russian bear. The Chinese, including the imperial court, concluded that Japan's advantage was in its constitutionalism. So, in 1905, the court sent several ministers to travel around the world to study other countries' constitutions. Their top destination was America, followed by the UK. And the visitors to the United States found themselves personally greeted by none other than President Theodore Roosevelt. The Qing court even established a new bureau, specifically charged with studying the constitutions of other countries. The traveling ministers, though, couldn't come up with a concrete proposal for how China should adopt a constitutional monarchy. So, one of the ministers sent the group's secretary, a man named Xiong Xiling, on a detour to Japan, where he would secretly consult with Liang Qichao, officially still a proscribed and exiled man. In the end, Xiong Xiling drafted the minister's proposal, substantially adopting many of the ideas that Liang Qichao already set forth in his writings. In September 1906, Empress Dowager Cixi, the true power behind the throne, decreed that the imperial government would begin to prepare for the promulgation of a constitution. A constitution that would retain sovereignty at court, while leaving matters of policy to public opinion. In the wake of the decree, various intellectuals began to establish civil associations across the country to discuss potential constitutions and to support the constitutional process. In August. 
1908, the Qing court issued an outline constitution. It was the first legal document that could qualify as a constitution ever issued in Chinese history. And it was modeled on the 1889 Japanese imperial constitution. Although the text being finalized by Empress Dowager Cixi herself, it left out some of the language in the Japanese blueprint that specifically limited the authority of the emperor. The Chinese emperor under this constitution would possess more power than his Japanese counterpart. As for rights of the people, this constitution guaranteed freedom of speech, writing, publication, assembly, and association within limits of the law. And it provided that no one could be arrested, imprisoned, or punished other than as provided by law. In the context of Chinese tradition, it's reasonable to see this document as a tremendous step toward a modern rule of law society. Certainly for millennia past, arbitrary detention or even torture and execution on the emperor's say-so was common. And free speech? You may remember our episode on the Yongzheng emperor and his infamous use of language prisons, where people were jailed for so much as writing a poem that the emperor didn't like. But in the fervor for reform of turn-of-the-century China, the 1908 outline constitution struck many as disappointing. Rather than bringing China closer to democracy, critics charged, the constitution was more concerned with shoring up the emperor's powers and legalizing them by putting them into a constitutional framework. Liang Qichao himself criticized the outlying constitution as more theater than substance, an attempt to fool the people into thinking that their government had truly changed. A few months afterward, in December 1908, a new emperor ascended the throne. Ai Xingjuelo Puyi, known as the Shentong Emperor, also deserves his own episode and was the subject of the 1987 film The Last Emperor. He was not yet three years old at the time of his ascension. And the fact of a Kinderkaiser might have rather accelerated the constitutionalizing process. In 1909, the first year of the reign of Shentong, the provinces began electing local assemblies. In 1910, the Zhengyuan, a kind of parliament, first opened its doors. Half of its members were elected by the provincial assemblies and half were appointed by the court. 
In May 1911, the Qing court abolished the previous imperial executive office and announced the formation of China's first cabinet. But once again, the measure that the court undertook, supposedly for the sake of reform, proved disappointing to many. Of the thirteen members of the cabinet, eight were Manchus, the ruling racial minority of the Qing Empire. Only four were ethnically Han, by far the majority race, and one was a Mongol. Moreover, of the eight Manchus, six were imperial relatives. The prime minister himself was none other than Prince Yikuang, a great grandson of Emperor Qianlong, and one of the leading princes of the House of Aixingjuelo. Both the Republican revolutionaries and those who had supported the idea of a constitutional monarchy now ridiculed. The composition of this cabinet, calling it nothing more than a cabinet of imperial family members. Many who supported constitutional monarchy up until this point concluded that the Qing court lacked sincerity in its supposed reforms. They began to support revolution instead. And. Revolution came, just a few months later, in October, nineteen eleven. It rendered the imperial cabinet moot, the outlying constitution moot, and soon, a republican congress replaced the imperial parliament. Thus ended China's experiment with constitutional monarchy. Perhaps some of the critique at the time was unfair. The British government didn't go from Elizabeth the First to Elizabeth the Second overnight. On the contrary, the Magna Carta was written in twelve fifteen. The Glorious Revolution happened in sixteen eighty eight, and the Act of Settlement was in seventeen o one. Surely, it was unrealistic to expect the Qing imperials to cover in a few short years the same constitutional distance that took European countries centuries and much bloodshed. But perhaps that fact rather suggests that constitutional monarchy never really stood a chance in China. The necessary pace at which reform could happen during the late Qing was always going to be too slow, in the opinion of most Chinese at the time, anxious as they were about the challenge of foreign encroachment and the urgency of modernity. So perhaps it was inevitable that public opinion would ultimately come to support the more drastic. And much more rapid course of revolution, and in any event, revolution was what happened, setting China on its path toward what we have 
today. For better or for worse. This has been MLDG. Thank you for listening.